The Secrets of Stargate is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Stargate, Episode 11. General West Jackson has identified the seventh symbol. All right, here we go. We are about to try to make a connection. All we gotta do is bust out of here, commandeer the ship, and fly on home. Indeed. say that a lot. I know that this could be dangerous. But this is our job, right? It's what we signed on to do. It was never about going home. It's about getting us to where we're going. Hi, I'm Jack Barazzini, and you're listening to The Secrets of Stargate, where we talk about the hidden meanings and deeper layers found in the Stargate movies, TV series, and more. Joining me today are Lisa Jones. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Jack. How's it going? It's going well. And Victor Lambs. Hey, Victor. Hi, Jack. All right. Today we are discussing the 11th episode of the first season of Stargate SG-1, The Torment of Tantalus. While looking through recently declassified documents and footage of the Stargate experiments from 1945, Daniel discovers that the gate has been activated once before and a man had been lost through it. Daniel visits Catherine Langford, who we last saw in the Stargate film. She reveals that the man who was lost through the Stargate was Ernest Littlefield, a scientist on the project who worked under her father, and that Ernest was also her fiancé. The SG-1 team, along with Catherine, travel to the planet where they meet Ernest, who is both aged and naked. On the planet, named Heliopolis, Ernest shows them a room in an ancient castle with four alien languages inscribed on the walls, and a device that displays a holographic book in what appears to be a universal language made up of atoms. They posit that the book contains the secrets of the universe, and Daniel becomes obsessed with deciphering it. Meanwhile, a massive storm hits the castle, and it starts to crumble. Jack, Teal'c, Catherine, and Samantha attempt to restore power to the DHD, but it ends up falling into the sea as the castle crumbles. They attempt to use the power source from the holographic book, much to Daniel's chagrin, but they are unable to break into the device. Fortunately, they end up being able to channel a bolt of lightning into the DeLorean and return to 1985. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, or otherwise known as, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Jackson commits treason again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't we just say last week, like, when is he going to figure out this whole military chain of command thing. Yeah. Yeah. I want to know how much longer they're going to put up with his, uh, his erratic behavior. About seven seasons. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what were your thoughts on this episode, Lisa? Um, you know, what's funny is I don't remember really liking this episode one way or the other back originally, but when I rewatched it now, I really enjoyed it. It moved quickly. It gave us all of uh, Daniel Jackson the way we love Daniel Jackson. Like, knowledge is everything, and I'm willing to die for knowledge. And you just, you know, move forward. And I don't know. I I liked it this time. A lot of uh, wit and humor. And Mm -hmm. again, laid out a pathway of how we're going to see the Stargate universe unfold, which is Yeah, definitely. What about you, Victor? I, I like this episode. This is one of my favorite episodes, certainly of season one. Um, very cool episode uh, written by Robert C. Cooper. Um, and it really does set up a lot of the mythology of the show. I think if they hadn't had these mythology and universe building shows uh, so early on in season one or midway through season one here, the, the show would not have uh, been as successful. But this just sets up so much uh, for the show that they then pay off over 
you know, 10 seasons of this show, six seasons of Atlantis or however many there were. And, and uh, yeah, very cool. Um, and it all starts from, from the very beginning where you're watching that grainy, you know, uh, footage of the Stargate as, as they're trying to dial it manually. And I think I wasn't able to find this on the internet, but one of the technicians who's dialing the gate manually turns around and looks at the camera. And I'm 95% certain that's uh, Brad Wright, the show's creator. Um, oh, nice. As in a cameo. He's been in, he's been in other episodes as a cameo. And again, yeah, I'm very glad that by this point in the show's run, he had established his firm anti-nudity stance because uh, that would have <laughs> not been... I mean, it's it's bad enough when it's, you know, oh, never mind. But oh, come yeah. on. It would have been, been edgy, right? <laughs> edgy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Equal time. Yeah. But but no, there's I, I like this episode a lot. It's very cool. You know, it, it gets into what I love most about the show, which is the mythology, mm-hmm. um, as well as the kind of like, you know, technical, uh, you know, jerry rigging they have to do to get things to work. And mm-hmm. so it pushes all the right buttons for me there. Yeah, definitely. I, I liked that about it. I liked that it didn't spend any time on... There wasn't really any sort of pointless filler in this episode. There wasn't really a B-plot. I mean, I guess I guess Catherine working with uh, finding out er, um, about Ernest and everything and kind of their how they pick up their relationship, uh, that's kind of the B-plot, but it's so integral to the main point of the story that it doesn't really feel like they had to fill any time with anything. And I liked that a lot. And I just like the whole, like the vibe you get at the beginning with the old grainy footage and like the, the 1945, uh, stuff. Like I want to, I want to see like a Captain America style, uh, Stargate show or something like that, where you get more, more stuff from the past. Yeah. It was origins and it wasn't good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah. It, and that footage, I mean, it does like, it subverts everything you think, you know, about the, the show and the universe. And when you see that gate fire up in the old footage and, you know, uh, Jack and Dr. Jackson turn to each other and say, that's impossible. It's as a, you know, as someone watching the show, you're like, yeah, that's supposed to be impossible because mm-hmm. like, like they couldn't get the gate to work. What's going on. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I love the way they make that connection back to the movie. Right. You haven't seen Catherine since the movie. Of course, she's found a fountain of youth and she looks yes. a lot younger. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but it was kind of nice to have that connection and bring it, you know, kind of bring it forward into the TV show mythology, right? The canon mm-hmm. of the show. Yeah. Cause in the movie, she was played by uh, Vivica Landfers and then uh, Elizabeth Hoffman is the one who plays her here. So, and I think Vivica Lanfers actually died the year after the original movie was released. So, obviously, they could not bring her back to reprise her role. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they did a good job tying in the threads that they set up in the movie in an organic way, which I appreciated. And I've also been comparing this as I've been watching it to a lot of the first seasons of the Star Trek shows. And this show, it kind of. It has it's doing the things with the mythology episodes and also the standalone episodes, which Next Generation didn't have to do as much because it already was working off an established franchise. Mm-hmm. But I also felt like that was that ended up being a hindrance because they didn't really have a lot to work with in terms of let's actually set up new things. And I like how they're balancing that out on this show. Yeah. And so you mentioned Elizabeth Hoffman, very good performance from her. Very easy to imagine this episode being a complete train wreck if, you know, the other guest uh, uh, star we had, or I shouldn't say star, but actor we had in this episode wasn't 
a, a phenomenal actor. Uh, Keen Curtis um, brings a lot to the role. I mean, I can't imagine um, anyone else in the role and he plays it with the right amount of like, you know, pathos and comedy and stuff. And, and mm-hmm. it's just, it's just easy to imagine this being a complete disaster. If, if uh, for example, we'd gotten Dom DeLuise in that role, but <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't imagine that one. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it, it's an impossible part to, to play and, and, and he just does an excellent job and you haven't seen, seen him in, in much, but he was, uh, I think mainly known as a, as a stage actor yeah. um, who did limited, uh, you know, TV and, and movie appearances. Yeah. He really did a good job portraying that character, which I feel like when you see the kind of castaway out of society for years and years kind of character they usually do it one of two ways where they're completely like violently insane or they just play it for comedy and i feel like they did a really good job walking that line here i do too because you they do acknowledge several times that it's been 50 years Mm -hmm. and so they don't walk through and expect him i mean he's not so far gone that he can't interact with them but at the same time he's not just Oh, hey, haven't seen anyone for 50 years. You know, so I feel like they walked a fine line there. And I mean, it it works in a, what, 43, 45 minute episode, you know? Yeah. There's a similar kind of plot in the latest season of Star Trek Discovery, and it does not work anywhere near as well. And it just comes across as laughable. But yeah, they also, the one thing I was wondering is they don't cover this at all, but where did he get his food? Because that place (laughs) seems to be pretty desolate. You know, we talked about that in Brief Candle, too, remember? So yeah. Like, magical food appears, right? But do you well, notice the clothes he was wearing? It was his... Um, diving. Diving suit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That he put on. Yeah, and, and at one point, very early on, he does hand uh, Dr. Jackson what looks like mm-hmm. it's just this black uh, lump, and it could be a plum or something, and he says, here, eat. And so... Yeah. There's obviously some some sort of food, maybe the uh, you know the Asgard left a vending machine or or something behind where you know obviously you'd, you'd want to have something there for for people to eat, but yeah, I mean there's just a lot going on in this episode, um, right? Uh, the relationship between uh, Ernest and um, who we we didn't mention his younger incarnation, uh, the actor playing him, who we'll see again in, in Stargate Atlantis uh, as Carson Beckett, obviously. Um, but uh, there's a lot going on in their relationship where, you know, if, if cast away for 50 years alone on this uh, in this rock, he's had to imagine uh, Catherine living her life with him um, when Catherine hasn't had the benefit of, of that. And in his mind, Catherine has forgiven him a long time ago. And in reality, Catherine's still very, very mad at him, mm-hmm. you know, so very uh, tragic, poignant uh, scenes there. OK, I have to. I have to stop you for a second. That was Carson. Paul. Yeah. Paul. No. Paul McGillan. Yeah. That was, that was him. Very, very young. Um, How did I not pick that up? Well, he looks ages different. <laughs> okay. I mean, he has, I'm he has just, his hair slicked back yeah. and yeah. Okay. I'm gonna have to go back and watch that. I know I had, I did not even see it. Did not even see it. Same, same nice. actor. That's cool. So we talked about that before that they reuse actors in Stargate and I mm-hmm. did not even catch it. So he ends up playing like a main role. That's pretty cool. Yeah, Paul Paul McGillan. And so uh, they do the same thing on uh, on Doctor Who, where you'll have the same actor playing several different roles. And famously, minor characters, actually, this happens at least twice in the show's run, become the Doctor. And then they have to explain, you know, like like why they look like this character you just met last season. Yeah. You know, when, they, when it's the same actor playing them. But 
Right. Yeah, they've done that with um like I know Tim Russ played three or four bit roles in Next Generation that ends up being main cast in Voyager, so it seems like it's a pretty pretty common thing. I also um I feel like one of one of the biggest places where the episode lags is that you don't get enough into what happened to Ernest or his like psychology being stuck there. I feel like there could have been a bit more of that. But of course, obviously, it's, you know, you got 45 minutes, so you've got to focus on what you want to focus on. Um, But I feel like that would have been interesting to explore his time there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they had a lot of ground to cover. They had the footage. They had the field trip to Catherine's house. They had to have, you know, Dr. Jackson get, uh, you know, uh, you know, yelled at by by Dr. Hammond, who, Mm -hmm. again, has already decided to do the right thing, (laughs) you know, while he's yelling. yeah, Yeah, while he's yelling at Daniel. Um, then as, as Jack calls him, you know, he's, he's a teddy bear. Uh, <laughs> I work for a guy who is a lot like Hammond. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He's an, he's an ex Marine and he's, you know, super, uh, super intimidating, but when you get to know him, he's really, really nice. So I find that oh, funny. Cool. Yeah, no, I love Hammond. He's, he's, he's becoming one of my favorite characters. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he like we, we told you early on, he is just a, a great solid supporting character on the show, you mm-hmm. know, where everybody tends to think of them like their dad right uh so um yeah the the main focus of this episode other than uh finding Ernest, um which this episode could have been called Ernest goes to heliopolis but you know <laughs> um is there's this room in the castle that uh, has the inscriptions of four different alien languages on the wall one of which they recognize as the language of the asgard from the previous episode that we'd seen uh, thor's hammer and there's this device in there that, when powered up, displays a holographic display of the basic atoms of the universe. And Ernest and uh, Daniel talk about how this is a it appears to be a universal language used by these four different alien species, um, and that it must be some sort of book that contains the secrets to the universe or something like that. And I think that's all great, but there's no indication in the room itself that this book is anything like that that it's like the encyclopedia galactica it could just be something like the uh rosetta stone which is really really important because it allowed us to decipher the egyptian hieroglyphics but i think it's just like a proclamation for ptolemy v or something like that like it's a pretty mundane message that's actually on it it's just important because of what it allowed us to do so i would like to see it'd be interesting to see that explored more yeah i i think Given what we know about the four races later on, and we've already met two of them at this point. So there, there's the Asgard, and then you'll find out who the other one is who we've already met. And then there's there's two more, one of which we, we kind of meet and one of which becomes one of the main focuses of, of the show. I think at this I think it's more ceremonial at this point. The, those four races know how to talk to each other. They wouldn't need something like this at this point. So it's there kind of to remind themselves of maybe how they met. And I think it could serve another purpose, which is to kind of, uh, you know, screen out uh, new civilizations to see if there is not to give away too much about the show. If there is a fifth race out there that could join their, you know, League of uh, Alien um, Worlds. Yeah. And um, and so, yeah, it's interesting. You know, they talk about, you know, there's 111 elements on the periodic table. Uh, you know, not 146. And today, you know, 24, 25 years later, there's now 118. So we're already 
you know, seven more closer to that 146 number. Yeah, so, moving that way. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. He also compares it to the United Nations, and I had to look this up to see, but the United Nations wasn't founded to like the end of 1945, I believe. So I guess either that puts Ernest leaving near the end of 1945, or it was just a minor flub on the writer's part, but it's feeling like League of Nations or something like that would be a, a more realistic thing for him to reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll, very interesting. Um, it's, a, it's also worth noting that this is um, the second episode in a row where Daniel is forced or someone is forced to kill some or destroy something that Daniel is very, <laughs> very personally invested in um, with Teal's uh, staff weapon. And it doesn't work this time, but it just seems Daniel's always finding something in the previous episode. It was Thor's hammer, the device that could save his wife. And this, it's, mm. you know, the, 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 the uh, key to the life, the universe and everything. And, um, and in both cases, Daniel doesn't get to, uh, doesn't get to keep it, but there's, there are a lot of really good Daniel moments in this where, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he, he says, uh, you know, in Ernest's presence, you know, it, it could take it. It could take a lifetime to decipher this. And Ernest, who's been there for 50 years, like <laughs> regretfully says more. And Daniel <laughs> is, of course, <laughs> ap- very apologetic. It's like, oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. 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 And Daniel's, <laughs> Daniel's more than willing to stay there forever. Right. Leave me yeah. here. Y'all go back. If I don't make it. Oh, well, at least I'll figure out the secrets of the universe and I'll do it. I'll do what Ernest couldn't do. Right. I'll mm-hmm. figure it all out. But he did go home with a notebook. Yeah. Right. Everything What's, that Ernest had put together and he went home with Ernest. So right. you would you would hope that he learned a lot and, uh, you know, unraveled the secrets of the universe once he got back. Yeah, I mean. Right. I mean, you got 50 years worth of, of information. Yeah. It's got to be, it's got to be a decent chunk. You would yeah. Think. That they're feeding into the computer. They're making a computer model of it uh, somehow. So <laughs> I would love to see how that process works. <laughs> Maybe a little easier now with like AI and stuff, but, but with those uh, three and a half inch uh, floppy disks, I wonder how many of those would, it would take to hold that model. But, but Burning it does like a 486. Like, yeah. Yeah, the very, I mean, and this is another example of, I can't imagine any uh, other actor like delivering this line when, when Ernest, you know, is trying to pull Daniel away from the, the machine. And, you know, it says like, no, no prize is, is worth obtaining. If you can never share it, there would be no point. And, um, the, the way he, I mean, it just, you know, it just, the line really lands and stuff. So again, uh, very, very grateful that we got such a, such an excellent actor in that role. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And this is definitely a Daniel centric episode. Like mm-hmm. Teal'c, Jack and Sam really don't have a lot to do in this. They sent like their main function is being a foil for Daniel to get him away from the crumbling castle. Yeah. And they, they touch on some of the trying to fix the DHD before it falls into the sea and they end up using the lightning rod to power the Stargate. But overall, you don't really get a lot of a, a lot of, stuff from them i do like though when Ernest uh comes up and gives them all hugs when he first finds them he just comes and gives uh teal a big hug i like that yeah. part <laughs> and they're all averting their eyes yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and of course we have to remember the two integral members of the team who uh gave their lives uh for the success of the mission in this case and that's maup and fred the two uh uh, remotely operated vehicles maup who we all know goes through but fred is the is the thing that just carries their stuff whenever they're off off world and they're both cannibalized for their uh electrical components in this <laughs> yeah. episode and we also get introduced to one piece of uh sg uh stargate command technology in this they they mentioned that they've launched a survey balloon mm-hmm. um which is i think the first 
uh, mention of like a UAV or one of their unmanned aerial vehicles that they'll make, uh, you know, obviously in a different form factor, but make a lot of use of those later on. Mm-hmm. So, and this, this but, episode was important. Also, you said that, uh, Jack and Teal'c and Sam didn't have much to do. But in one hand, Sam figuring out how to dial out and how to how to fix the gate, right? How to power mm-hmm. the gate. That was huge because that's a I hate to say a recurring theme, you know, over the next few years, but it really is. You know, there's always going to be a problem with the DHD, there's going to be a problem with the gate. And, and so this was kind of the first time that they had to solve that problem. And mm-hmm. I did I did kind of cringe that it was Jack that figured out, oh, we just use the you know, you lose lightning, right? I mean, yeah, I'm sitting there that, thinking that Ben Franklin thing. <laughs> really, Sam? Like yeah. you couldn't? <laughs> I mean, like you you said, uh, Jack, in the beginning, like the whole Back to the Future, 1984. You know, the lightning strike. You know, yeah. the power of the the. Um, I can't think of the car's name. Like what the car was? The, the DeLorean. DeLorean. The DeLorean. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the same kind of thing. So I did kind of cringe. I'm like, the scientist didn't figure that out. Jack did, but. But it was an important aspect of the show because it was the first time that they had to find an alternate power source to power the gate and had to dial manually. And that, you know, that that does come into play quite a bit, you know, as we move forward. It's very jarring, too, to see Sam look at a broken DHD and say, (laughs) I have no idea how to rearrange these crystals because in in three or four seasons, she's going to be like, you know, ring transporting up to a gold mothership and like pulling crystals out and making it, you know, make espresso instead of. Yeah. (laughs) Not not that maybe, but, you know, or, or finding like yeah. ghouled weapons and just going, brr, brr, mix, you know, pulling out the crystals and stuff. Right, right. So, so yeah, that was a little, that was a little jarring. Um, but we do get a very good exchange between Jack and Teal, where, where Jack is like, okay, basic survival training. Like, what have we got? What do we need? <laughs> Teal's like, we have the Stargate. We need the dial home device. It's like, thanks, Teal. <laughs> yeah. We- <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mr. Literal. But- and yeah. I also I also really like the interplay with Catherine because they didn't have to introduce her to all the characters. So that, you know, we, we know she knew Daniel, right? Mm-hmm. Now the the whole welcome of Jack seemed a little much considering last time she saw Jack, he was a gruff, very serious Air Force officer, right? Who was shutting down her project or shutting her out of the project, right? Back in the movie. But then I like how they interplayed that she knew Sam. That yeah. the, that's the premise of Sam Carter is that she worked on all this, you know, in the in the background, right? And so I kind of like that they 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 had that in and they knew each other. And then of course it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I told you all about too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought that was it was good how they did that where you didn't have to have too many reintroductions. And they also they wrote the story in such a way that they didn't have to give a lot of background for the actual Stargate movie. Like usually, or a lot of times when they do episodes like this in a show that references something from earlier, they'll spend too much time giving you a summary. And I liked how they just kind of go with it and expect you to know what's going on. I would say, I think that's what I liked watching the movie. I mean, the movie, watching this episode now that I've seen, you know, all of the seasons versus when I watched it in the beginning was that it, I realized how really um, well it did at, at setting up so much in the future. You know, it kind of, mm-hmm. you know, showed all that interplay. And I didn't get all that the first time. I'll be honest. I didn't get it. <laughs> yeah. And it's always fun to go back and see what things got set up and how they end up paying off later on. And just mm-hmm. how well the cast, it's this is the, yeah, the 11th episode of the first season and how well the cast has already gelled and they 
seem to know their characters. Like a lot of times you'll get uh, like first season, all that first season early weirdness where the characters end up being completely different. Mm-hmm. I think the most jarring thing about that for me is thinking of the last time, like you were saying, the last time Catherine and Jack interacted and it being Kurt Russell. And at this point, I cannot think of Kurt Russell as <laughs> Jack O'Neill because he's it just the character does not work that way. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. And you're right. That is that is what Stargate did. SG-1 did beautifully in the TV show is that from season one, they just set up the characters beautifully. The actors, the chemistry, all of it. And it doesn't really change. I mean, what you're looking at now with these four, I will say, plus, um, you know, uh, Donis Davis. I mean, this is who they are and this is who it mm-hmm. goes forward. So that's kind of nice. I was, I can't include Janet Frazier in that because we'll develop her. We haven't really developed Janet Frazier yet, and we'll get that mm-hmm. really by the end of the season. But but for these four, it's this is it. This is what makes the show to me so successful is their interplay and their um, personalities and their banter and you know all all of that. The writers just did a great job. Mm-hmm. I want to know why Star Trek seems to falter so much in their early seasons because. A lot of other shows I can think of, like Stargate or The X-Files or like Firefly, which only had one season, mm-hmm. things like that, they hit the ground. Like there's a little bit of shakiness, but they hit the ground running pretty much out of the gate. And every single Star Trek series, other than the first, really struggles. Yeah. There's so much baggage, I think, with being a Star Trek show. Probably, People come yeah. in with expectations and, you know, there's, and plus you have a studio like Paramount who has this franchise and has to, you know protected so i think i think that there's just a lot of baggage and you mentioned some really good sci-fi shows that hit the ground running but for everyone that you mentioned there are you know in the in the 80s and 90s there were five or, or even 10 that nobody remembers anymore you know that only lasted you know <laughs> half a season while well, firefly but um you know before they got pulled so i mm-hmm. we do remember the successes and it is i think just because you have behind those shows each one if, if i'm remembering correctly there's you know a a definite showrunner who has a very clear and distinctive voice and, you know, idea of what they want the show to be and doesn't have to answer to a lot of suits, probably some suits, you know, with the, with the network and the studios, but you know, not the way that somebody who is launching a new star Trek show would plus, you know, a lot of that too is the fans, right? I mean, why didn't universe take off? It was something new, something different, you know, and Mm -hmm. the fans, hated it you know i was i was one of them until you know started to get good right before that you know what to to defend universe a little bit the people that i know who didn't watch stargate issue one or stargate atlantis liked universe but the people who were you know diehard fans of the first you know sg1 and atlantis it was such it was so different from the first two shows and i think they were trying to be what Battlestar Galactica was or some of these others and they changed it too much but I think standalone it was probably a really good show but for those of us who were attached to Stargate it was it was too hard it was too much of a change yeah mm-hmm. you know what show came to mind when you were saying that it was Farscape uh, oh I love Farscape. You Farscape I was gonna yeah. look it up it was on either before or after SG1 at some point I don't know if I, I gotta google it, it. Was... it was like it was like either the sci-fi Friday night. I can't remember. Yeah. And of course we yeah, see yes. Ben Browder and Claudia Black later because they joined Stargate, but, but yeah. it was just kind of, I never really got into Farscape, I'll admit, but um, it, that's what I thought of when you're talking about shows. It's, it's worth going back and just accepting that this is basically like 
some weird Muppet version of sci-fi because I mean it is Brian Henson like writing and directing it and stuff and you know everything that Brian Henson does is a little weird like it's a little off it's a little like eh, this is like not really normal but you know it's 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 you know it's it's an acquired taste and and give it another chance I would say but yeah it was largely concurrent (laughs) with with uh but yeah I mean the other shows like you know you remember Dark Matter Continuum um killjoys although killjoys i think was was doing its own thing like it or 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 hate it but you know a lot of these shows just they just didn't have a distinctive right you know voice behind them and and they just kind of yeah i okay since all things 90 are popular again for the youngers you know like the teens i have teens um so 90s is very popular right um between the clothes the music friends you know all of it so i asked yeah, I and the video kids, games. <laughs> I said, yeah, the video games. I asked my kids to say, "Why? What do you? What do you like about Stargate? Because of the, you know, like, is it because it's '90s cool? What is it?" And they, they wanted, they wanted meant to, you know, like that's no, they can't tell their friends they like '90s sci-fi. But they said, "What makes Stargate unique to them versus all these other stuff, sci-fi's and everything they watch is is really the character development and the humor." I mean, that's mm-hmm. that. They, they it, trust me. They tell me it is not the um, um, effect, special effects. It's not what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the funny thing is for me since I grew up watching '90s sci-fi. When I watch new sci-fi that has like a good budget, it almost like I, I almost don't like it as much because I just grew up with the, that particular style. And so when I see that, like it doesn't even take any suspension of disbelief for me to watch shows like Stargate or even like Babylon five, things like that, just because I know what I'm getting into and that's kind of what I grew up with. So I just accept it as part of that universe. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think also part of it too is, is, you know, you saw this a little bit in the nineties towards the end of it, but you know, nowadays there's an expectation that, you know, every show has to have a political component to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be making a statement with who the characters are, you know, their backgrounds. You know, you, you couldn't make a Stargate show today and have Jack, you know, without him being an alcoholic. Back then, you could just have characters who were characters and tell a story without, you know, having to introduce a, a lot of, uh, you know, politics into it and stuff. And I actually like the special effects in this episode i thought the the hologram was very nicely done they did a good yeah. job um mm-hmm. compositing that and it actually like there's really convincing film uh grain uh on the the you know the the computer generated stuff that makes it sit really well with the rest of the uh the, yeah the, uh, they integ- yeah. they integrate it all well and uh they even do with uh the holograms like you get like light cast which yeah. It's hard to do. Um, so it's cool. They did that. Um, but yeah, what you're saying about the characters, that's, that's one of the reasons I have such a hard time getting into a lot of modern TV shows is because everybody has all this, everyone has to be emotionally tortured and no one can just be like <laughs> yeah. a balanced person who in a professional setting, it's, they always have to have something going on. And they have to hate each other too, for some reason. I yeah. mean, <laughs> you know, we, we watched Stargate Atlantis with, with, uh, you know, our, our our kids and you know it's like gosh this show's really good it's like people aren't yelling at each other they're all working together as a team it's it's kind of like you know what they see reflected more i mean can you imagine going to work in a place where everybody is like hating each other trying to undermine each other trying to shove each other out of airlocks and or whatever you know yeah that's not life i mean if it and if it is you know get a different job because you know that shouldn't be what you're you know experiencing yeah right that was Yeah. yeah that was the problem with uh picard 
is there's like four or five principal characters and every single one has like is like an alcoholic or has like a horrible traumatic past or has all this stuff going on even including picard and it's like i don't sit down and watch this science fiction show about the future <laughs> and feel happy i just feel depressed like <laughs> it's not what i want out of my sci-fi like, I, you can, I think it, i think it says a lot about the people writing these shows too I mean, what you get with Stargate and, you know, this is one of my soapboxes here is I think you had very like happy, energetic people who just wanted to tell cool stories with cool mm-hmm. technology and they would get together in a room and just bounce cool ideas off of each other and just mm-hmm. hang out. And that's who their characters were. I mean, you, you want to hang out with, you know, the characters of SG1 and Atlantis and you really don't want to hang out with anybody on Picard. Um, <laughs> right. Well, and you you get the background stuff in the interviews and the actors all say they all liked each other. There wasn't any drama on set that you heard about. I mean, it just, like you said, it seemed like a good atmosphere. They all stayed together for the most part for a long time. You you didn't have a lot of in and outs and people moving around. So I think that's reflected Mm -hmm. in how they tell their stories and what's on screen. And yeah. And I think that's what people like about the shows. I know this has turned from talking about a torment of Tantalus into just the uh, overview of 90s sci-fi versus modern <laughs> sci-fi in general but that's completely fine um but you get uh shows like this i think are going to last despite the dated effects or you know some dated things are going to do yeah because the you like the characters and that's really what every tv show is about is the yeah, characters and the stories and, and i apologize for going full grumpy old man or andy rooney in this episode you ever notice how on science fiction shows today it's not about the science or the fiction why do the characters all hate each other is this what people want to see but yeah apologies uh for my bad andy rooney impression too but no i mean it, it yeah i mean shows like this do last because they're fun to watch and in my experience you know if people have fun making a show it'll be fun for the audience mm-hmm. to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, yeah. And that's, if people aren't having fun making a show, if they feel that they're making a show, you know, for any other reason than to, to have fun and have the audience have fun, then, you know, that'll show in the, in the final product as well. Yeah. And that's why we're sitting here a couple of decades after it aired talking about it. Right. Yeah. yeah because definitely. they, they enjoyed what they were doing. Seven elements later on the periodic table. Here we are. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to see uh, how many years later till we get to forty six or one forty six. Yeah, you know one thing we haven't touched on, which uh, Victor, you said you really like mythology setting it up. Okay, so the title of this episode, "Torment of Tantalus." How mm-hmm. did you feel about them talking about who Tantalus was and and, and what this was about? So, yeah, I, I felt like it was a bit forced, like because that's not really. What happened with Tantalus? I feel like they could have picked a better metaphor. I mean, it's a it's a great title. I love when science fiction shows have like these mythological titles, like old Star Trek. I think even like old Doctor Who would do like that thing where they'd have a lot of allusions in their titles. Um, so I like that aspect, but I feel like his his comparison was a bit of a reach. Yeah, it's like here's the boat, here's them, and they kind of just missed it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the point isn't temptation or like striving for something that you can never attain the door like you're being tortured because you can't have a drink of water i mean you're and, and your feet are wet all the time i mean it's yeah you, you can't really make it into a bigger yeah you can but it doesn't work if you try to make it into a bigger like existential 
like you know point uh than than just no you're just being tortured you know that's the way i yeah. read it so do you think and, that using heliopolis would have been a better title for this episode uh i don't think so i think i think i think uh you know jack said it back best when it's like you know Ernest goes to heliopolis would have been probably the the best <laughs> title for this episode <laughs> i have one i'll call it a hiccup and that is at the end of the episode when they talked about um that if the the Stargate fell into the water and you know the the bottom fell of the castle that they wouldn't be able to dial in that it, it remember they tried to dial back in and it wouldn't engage you know Chevron Seven will not engage right or lock and so but we we see spoiler alert right in further seasons where you can dial into a gate that's underwater or in ice or in Aquita or you know whatever so I, I that was my only. You know, as the episode ended, I was kind of like, okay, I didn't. My husband said it. He says, I have to give him credit if I say this. So, you know, that that, they, that was one of those things that I think that was uh, for now. But then in a couple of seasons, they're like, well, what, what, what if, right? What if mm-hmm. we can dial a gate that's underwater? You know, something like that. Nice. Yeah, it's one of yeah. those. What do they call it on TV trips? Like early season weirdness or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we get we get the best Stargate SG one episode title uh, coming up when when that does happen, uh, and it's called uh, Watergate. Watergate. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, season five, nice. I want to say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. With with a star from Star Star Trek. Yeah, the next generation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice, awesome. Well, uh, what about you, Victor? I just wanted to say this place used to be pretty sweet, but it's seen better days. <laughs> <laughs> As Jack says. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Before we go, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Secrets of Stargate, including Joey F., Michael B., Daniel R., Justin P., and Margaret Q. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the Secrets of Stargate and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or on the SQPN YouTube channel. To find previous episodes of Secrets of Stargate and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com stargate. You can email us at stargate at sqpn.com or follow StarQuest on social media at facebook.com starquestmedia or on Twitter at sqpn. You can also join the StarQuest fan club mailing list by texting StarQuest to 6686. Send StarQuest to 6686. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the next episode of SG-1, Bloodlines. Until then, Lisa Jones, thank you for joining me and sharing in the secrets of Stargate. Thanks, Jack. And Victor Lambs, thank you as well. Thanks, Jack. And once again, I'm Jack Barazzini. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Stargate on StarQuest. Anyway, I'm sorry, but that just happens to be how I feel about it. What do you think?